Hi, good afternoon. Uh, well, welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library on a beautiful Sunday afternoon um, in the middle of football season. Uh, before I introduce Larry Ty, uh, I wanted to tell a little story that I actually kind of got to meet Satchel Paige when I was about 10 years old in the late 70s. Um, my father got tickets to this sports bank when he took my older brother and me there. And um, all I remember is that he wore a full-length fur coat and he wouldn't sign autographs. And that was the, the most disappointing thing that my brother and I ran up and like Willie Stargell was there and um, uh, I think uh, uh, Dan Marino was there when he was still playing for Pitt. And we got, we got all these autographs, but, but like, we left going, Satchel Page wouldn't sign autographs. But anyway, but I got to see the guy, and unfortunately, I wish I was older so I could have remembered more. But anyway, enough about me. Um, you're here to hear, to hear Larry Ty talk about Satchel Page. Um, Larry's been, uh, he's been a writer for a long time, writes a lot about medical stuff, which is cool. Um, but he's written a number of books on all kinds of different topics. Um, Pretty diverse, actually. Um, but this is his, his latest book, I guess. And uh, I really wish I could stay here and listen to it, but I have to go downstairs and work. But I'll listen to the podcast, which will be online in a number of days, right? Right. All right. Uh, so everyone, welcome. Get some peanut, some some popcorn, and some. We don't have any cracker jacks, but so we have some drinks back here. And welcome, Mr. Ty. We're a wonderfully intimate little group here, and we're going to do this as um, something fun and interactive. And the, what I actually wanted to start off by saying is I never thought that I was going to make it here today, because when we got home last night from dinner, it was 9 o'clock in Boston, and I don't know if you saw any weather reports, but 9 o'clock in Boston last night in my house meant that there was an enormous tree down covering half the street, and there was a live power line out in the street where when we went to take the dog out for a walk after dinner, the police were instructing us that anywhere that the power line was live and that if we wanted to quickly end our dog's life or our life, all we had to do was walk anywhere near there. And the, so we, I left the house this morning with no power and no sense that Boston was a place that I wanted to be in today. And it's much nicer to be here in Baltimore, where I understand you had some combination of rain and snow yesterday, and it all went away. And it looks to me like Miami, Florida, from where I just came from. What I would love to do, anybody here, the, the guy who just left um, said that he had seen Satchel Page pitch. Nobody else, you're all too young to have ever seen Satchel Page. I saw him pitch on television. You did see him pitch on television when he was playing for the in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. All-star game. In the All-Star Game, you don't remember when was that? The, um, I'm trying to think what year he Probably was All-Star Game. Probably 60 years ago. Yeah, something like, uh, it would have been 49 or 50. What I would love to do, since you're the only one who saw him pitch, and you only got to see him pitch on television. The, the thing I remember mostly was... Actually, we're going to do the podcast, yeah. He threw a curveball that you could see cross... It seemed to cross the plate on an angle. It was such a big breaking curveball. That's the thing I remember most. Well, that's a good thing to remember. Joe DiMaggio used to say that it gave him optical indigestion to watch Satchel's curveball because it did take, take such an extraordinary curve. What we're going to do here this afternoon is I'm going to take you with me 
the three games that were really important in Satchel Paige's life, and that also have something to do with the exhibit that's going on downstairs about the Negro Leagues generally. And the first game I want to take you to, anybody know, do you know what year, the first year that Satchel Paige pitched a professional baseball? You mean in the Negro in the Leagues? In the Negro Leagues. I don't remember what you wrote. Well, it was 1926. And it was 1926. He was pitching for a team that was totally inappropriately named the Chattanooga White Sox, an all-black team. And he came up. Can I borrow your hat there for a second? He came up looking like the trademark Satchel Page, which was he had a baseball hat on that was tilted a little bit to the right. And he had feet that were so enormous. One of the theories on where his name Satchel came from was Satchel Foot, that his feet were the size of suitcases. And they were so big that those days in the Negro Leagues, they had no shoes, no regulation baseball shoes that could fit his feet. So they took his street shoes and they nailed spikes to the bottom of them. And he came out as green as the outfield grass. He was a totally untested young pitcher. And man, can you catch a baseball back there? There's nobody behind you, so there's no worry And he came out throwing the baseball. Nice job. Wow. <laughs> he came out throwing the baseball so fast that had they had a radar gun there, my guess is it would have said 98, 100 miles an hour. Some people said that he was pitching 102 or 3 or 4 miles an hour. It was extraordinary. And he was pitching so wild that by the end of that first game, he had hit just about every player on the opposing team. And he came in with this extraordinary raw talent. He weighed 140 pounds. He stood six feet, three inches. And they used to say that to hold up his, his uh, to, to give some substance to his legs, he used to have to wear three pairs of socks. And he was an extraordinary guy. Anybody know, you've read some of the book at least, where did Satchel Page learn how to throw a baseball? It seems to me he did that by throwing rocks, and a lot of the reason why he threw rocks was because uh, where he grew up, uh, people would, white boys would chase him and stuff. And he got so good at throwing rocks, he could stave them off by throwing rocks. He did. Well, that's a very good answer. But the, the place that he actually really learned to refine his baseball pitch was the same place, and we're in an appropriate place to talk about this, where Babe Ruth learned how to hit a baseball. What institution was Babe Ruth in when he learned St. how to St. Mary's. In St. Mary's. Exactly, the juvenile center, St. Mary's. And it was at a place in Alabama that Satchel Page learned how to pitch a baseball. At age 12, largely because he came from such a big family that his parents couldn't take care of him and all the other kids. At age 12, he was sentenced to reform school. And the reform school's very name suggests what life was like in America back then. It was called the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Delinquent, I'm sorry, for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. The Alabama Reform School. So you can imagine this was not a place that at age 12 you wanted to go suddenly be put in uh, their care. And he spent the next five years there, from age 12 to 17. And when he came out at age 17, he said, I traded five years of freedom to learn how to pitch a baseball. And he did learn how to pitch a baseball. He also learned a lot of other things. Because despite its name, and despite the fact that it existed in a very Jim Crow Alabama with everything separate from whites and blacks, the good news was 
there was a guy down the road named Booker T. Washington who had set up this reform school. And this was a place that taught kids how to be adults. He taught them, anybody know what Booker T. Washington's theory was in terms of black advancement back then? What if, there were two schools of black advancement in America. There was the Booker T. Washington School over here, and at the very other end, there was the, who was the other one? E.B. Dubois. And that was the, the NAACP school. And Dubois believed that we had to tear down the barriers of Jim Crow America. What did Booker Washington do with that? Pass down the buckets when you are. Let's say very poetically. And what he was actually saying was that this Jim Crow system is going to be around for a long time. He was right, it was around for 50 years. And he said, what we have to do is we have to learn how to exist within this system. It's an unfair world. But the satchel pages are going to be old men by the time we tear down the system. So we've got to teach them how to do one thing better than anybody else out there. And that's the way they're going to get ahead of the world. And satchel page came out knowing how to do one thing better than anybody else, which was to pitch a baseball. And he went to that team, the Chattanooga White Sox, and he pitched the baseball so hard and so fast that it was extraordinary. And he also, I said, he started off by pitching it wild. Well, what his coach did, his coach understood that this was a raw talent that had to be shaped. And so his coach took him out every day, and they had right behind him, on the other side of home plate, there was a big fence. And that fence had a knot in it the size of a grapefruit. Now, a grapefruit is not a whole lot bigger than a baseball. But Satchel Page got to where he could throw 8 out of 10 baseballs through that knot in the fence the size of a grapefruit. He started out pitching hard and fast. He learned how to pitch hard and fast and put a baseball where he wanted it to be. And when he got done in Chattanooga, he used to go out before the game, partly to refine his skills and partly to put on a show for anybody who came early, he would go out and set a matchbook. Now, I haven't seen a matchbook in a long time, but I saw a matchbook last night, and we were lighting candles in our dark house in snow-covered Boston. And he would put that little matchbook on home plate. He'd stick back 60 feet, 6 inches to the pitcher's mound, and he got that he could knock down that matchbook, again, about 8 times out of 10. And when he got tired of a matchbook, he would put a postage stamp there. And this guy was so good, and he was such a showman, that when he left his Negro League world in Chattanooga and went on to the big leagues of Negro League baseball in places like Baltimore, what was the team in Baltimore called? The Eli Giants? No. Baltimore Elites? The Elites. They were an extraordinary team. And that was the major leagues. He started out in the minor leagues of the Negro Leagues. He ended up in the major leagues. And he ended up being an extraordinary Negro League phenomenon. So this is 1926 that he's starting all this stuff. 1926, we know in America, was not an easy time. And it was not an easy time for a young black guy from Mobile, Alabama. So he leaves there in 1926. He takes off for this extraordinary, successful career in Negro Leagues baseball. The second game I want you to come to me with is in 1948. Now, anybody remember what had just happened in 1947 in baseball in America? Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. What happened with Jackie Robinson? He was the first black player in the major leagues. He was the first black player in the real... The in the modern era. Exactly, in the modern era. And in fact, there had been black professional ball players 50 years before 
before we had Jim Crow, and before we decided that everything had to be separate worlds. <coughs> and Jackie Robinson in 1947 was signed by Branch Rickey to play for the New York Dodgers, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. 1948, the summer of 1948, if anybody's a baseball aficionado, the hottest pennant race maybe in the history of the American League in the summer of 48. Who were the teams going for the pennant in the summer of 48? The Yankees and the Dodgers. The dreaded New York Yankees, as we call them in Boston. The, who else? Dodgers. I'm not the Dodgers. <coughs> no? This is the American League. Oh, it's I beg your pardon. The hated New York Yankees. It's the beloved Red Sox. Boston Red Sox. It is, <laughs> it's a team in Philadelphia that was owned by a guy named Connie Mack that no longer exists, which was the Philadelphia Athletics. And there was also a team, an extraordinary team in Cleveland, Ohio, owned by one of the true characters in baseball. And that was the, the Cleveland Indians. Owned by whom? Who were they owned by then? The Indians. A huge character, one of the greatest figures. A friend is now writing a biography on this guy. It's going to be a great book because this guy's a character. And it is Bill Beck. Beck. Right. What do we know about Bill Beck? Anything you remember about Bill Beck? Yes, we put up the midget on the uh, St. Louis Cross. Yes, I'm sorry. What is the, um, the terminology today is not. They, they called him a midget then, and today it would be a little person. They put up a little person. Now, what he realized was the chance of any pitcher in the world being able to get a strike over when the player who's up at bat is three feet tall is negligible. So he puts this guy, he hires this guy named Eddie Gaidel, and he gets away with it one time. The guy only bats one time in his entire career. That one time was a walk. There's nobody could pitch this guy. Bill Beck would do anything to draw a crowd. What he did in the summer of 48 was, he called in a guy for a trial. Hardest paint race ever. We got these four teams, and Bill Beck wants to get the edge. And so he brings down his player manager, who was a guy who was an extraordinary hitter named Lou Boudreau, who was competing that summer of 48 with our beloved Peg Williams in Boston for the batting title of the American League. And he says to Lou Boudreau, who just had a night game the night before, he says, I want you to come down early the next morning. I've got a guy sitting in the dugout who's going to be our savior. He's going to separate us from the Philadelphia, the Boston, and the New York teams. And Boudreau is really tired, but he comes down and he says, you know, what's Bill Beck up to now? And Beck points to the dugout. And he looks in the dugout and he sees the ancient satchel cage sitting in the dugout. This is a guy who, remember, we're in 1948 now. He started, what year did we start him out at? 1926. 26. So he's been playing baseball for 22 years in professional baseball, all of it in the black world of professional baseball and Negro leagues. And Boudreau looks and says, well, it's really nice to see this extraordinary central page here, but what's, where's our savior? We're, we're not looking for a guy who's been around for 22 years. And Vec is the kind of guy, he's a show-me kind of guy. Don't tell me about how good he is. I'm going to show you how good he is. Can you pitch a baseball? Try pitching me a baseball. Now hold on one second when I say that. <laughs> so the, I said that Boudreaux was a good enough hitter. He was a player manager. that He was competing for the batting title that year. And Beck says to him, I know you think this guy's washed out, but I want you to go in and stand in and take a few pitches. That's all I ask of you. So pitch me a baseball. So that's what he does. He does that for about 20 pitches. The most he can do, that's about as far as the baseball went. The most he can do is either whip at the baseball or hit it mildly out into the infield. 
which is a good thing because the only infielder out there was Bill Beck, who anybody who knows him, he had a wooden leg. So we've got a wooden leg, a one-leg infielder trying to shag baseball with this extraordinary hitter, Lou Boudreau up there. And Beck goes from being, he says, what do you think now? And Boudreaux says, I'm going to go home and get some sleep. I've got just one more thing to say. Simon will. So the date is July 7th, 1948, which happens to be Satchel Page's birthday. On his 42nd birthday, he signed to his first major league contract. He's a 42-year-old rookie. Now I want you to think for one second what 42-year-old rookie means. In Boston, we have sort of touchstones in terms of the age of baseball players. And there was a guy named Roger Clemens, who you may have heard of, who came in and pitched. He went back to the Yankees and pitched great baseball in his late 30s. And we thought that that aided by whatever he might have been aided by. And I'm not quite sure now. We, this will come out in a legal case whether he was aided by any enhancing drugs. But at age late 30s, Roger Clemens come back, comes back, and we call that a medical miracle. In Boston, we have a pitcher named Tim Wakefield who throws a baseball and a knuckleball at about two miles an hour. And we think that's a medical miracle. He does it in his early 40s. Satchel Page, a fireball pitcher, is coming back to be the savior of the Cleveland Indians on his 42nd birthday. Any idea how that year turned out, 1948, that huge race? Who won the pennant that year? Who won the World Series? Cleveland, didn't they win it? Didn't Cleveland win it? Didn't they win it? And didn't they win it because of a guy? Wasn't there some guy who came in the middle of the season named Satchel Page who went on to pitch to a six and one record, an ERA of two point four seven, which was the second lowest in baseball that year. And my favorite tribute to how Satchel Page did coming back at age forty two, not only took the Indians to the American League pennant and helped take them to the World Series. A win the last time, I think that's the last time 48 that Cleveland won the World Series. At the end of the year, they get together all the baseball writers from across America and they have them vote on awards like Rookie of the Year. At age 42, Satchel Page got a dozen votes for Rookie of the Year, a 42 year old rookie. To which he said, I'm delighted at what the gentlemen did, but I'm not quite sure what year they're talking about. So we had Satchel Page coming into baseball in 1926 in our first game. In 1948, at age 42, he pitches well enough to earn himself this Rookie of the Year votes. The last game I want to take you to was in 1965. Now my math isn't very good, but what's the 1926 to 1965 is how many years? 39. 39 years. 39 years. His last game that he pitched in professional baseball was in 1965. Anybody remember what happened in 1965? Why was Satchel Page pitching in baseball? Remember? What, what city what were we at? Kansas City. Kansas City. And there was a A's. A's. Kansas City A's. The old Kansas City A's, where there was a guy who was even more of a character than Bill Beck, who owned the Kansas City A's. Charlie Finley. Charlie O. Finley. What do we know about Charlie Finley? Anybody know any stories about Charlie Finley? He was pretty radical. He was extraordinary radical. He was, this guy would do anything to fill up a baseball stadium. He once, he used to hate reporters, and he once brought a donkey in, a jackass, that he called Charlie O. At the end of the game, when the owner would often go in and meet with reporters, he decided to send his donkey in instead of him. 
This is the guy who would do anything. Well, the Kansas City AIDS, grab some popcorn and then cider and grab a seat here. The, uh, so at the end of the season, Charlie Finley had trouble filling the baseball stadium the entire season. And he would do anything to fill a stadium. At the very end of September, when the season was about over, and all of his guys, instead of going to the playoffs, were going to go home for the winter, he decided he could fill the stadium for one night by bringing in this extraordinary guy named Satchel Paige. I saw that. One night. You saw that? That was one you saw they, me? They put him outside the dugout in a rocking chair. They put him outside the dugout in an enormous rocking chair. They had a nurse in a white uniform there standing by just in case this ancient Satchel Paige needed some help. They gave him his personal ball. But he was about there. 60, right? I mean, how old he was, was he? We're going to get to that in one second, just how I mean, old he was. That he started in 19, well, for a baseball player. He was old. My so they put him out there in a rocking chair. They fill up the stadium, the only night the entire season, when they filled up the entire stadium was when they brought this ancient satchel page. This is a guy who started out in 1926. 42-year-old rookie of the year in 1948. In 1965, they bring him in. They bring him in for three innings. Any idea how he did in those three innings? I don't remember that part of it. All I remember is the rocking chair. Great. He pitched 27 pitches in three innings. Now, is that you guys baseball? Are you a baseball player? You're not a real baseball player? Yeah. 27 pitches in three innings, nine batters. Is that pretty good? Very no. good. I was it's great. <laughs> one guy, one guy got hit against him. That guy was a guy named Carly Stremsky. Anybody know the name Carly Stremsky? He was the last guy in baseball to win the Triple Crown. He was an extraordinary baseball player. Listen, I've already been here for a second as a problem. So after the game, the Carly Stremsky comes up to Satchel Page and he gives him an enormous bear hug. Thank you. The bear hug was not because Carl Yastrzemski was a warm and fuzzy guy. Carl Yastrzemski was a really cantankerous guy. He gave him a bear hug because exactly a generation before that, 20-something years before that, Yastrzemski's father had gone up to bat against Satchel Page, and Satchel had struck him out. Yastrzemski's father played semi-pro ball on Long Island. Satchel Page is the only guy in the history of baseball who stuck around long enough that he could pitch the father's and to sons and to grandsons. He was around that long. You asked how old he was. He was that night. He set a record. There aren't many records in baseball. Baseball people are crazy numbers people, and they're, uh, they're crazy about records. And every record just about gets broken. You know, we have a record for how many uh, home runs you can get in an inning or in a, in, a, uh, in a World Series game. In this World Series, we tied the record. The guy hit three home runs in the game. Every record in baseball that's set is eventually broken. The Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's home run record. And Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's home run record. This is one record that will never be broken. It is a record for the oldest player ever to play in baseball. 59 years, two months, and eight days, Satchel Page played, uh, set a record. He, was, he broke the previous record by a full two years. That night when he pitched in, against the Red Sox, in Kansas City, he was exactly 33 years older than his catcher. Everybody was saying to him before the game, you belong in that rocking chair. You don't belong out here on the pitcher's mound. 59, imagine what 59 is. 
We talked before about Roger Clemens in his early 40s. People were, were, thought that he was a medical miracle. Satchel Paige went out there and he didn't just pitch, but he pitched one hit baseball for three innings at age 59. When he got done pitching, he went under the stadium and he started to change into his street clothes. They came up and got him and they said, Satchel, come on back out on the field. We want you out there. So he puts on his uniform again. He goes out on the field, and it's a dark field. And suddenly, everybody starts flicking their cigarette lighters. It was like at a rock concert. And the organist at this ballpark played that old brain there. And they gave Satchel Page a standing ovation. It was something in those stands there, by the way, were six of Satchel Page's, all six of his children, his wife wasn't there because she was at home pregnant with the seven <laughs> Now, how many people, his, his kids were teenage, they had never seen him do this kind of thing. They were all too young, and they came back and watched him at age 59 astound people. There's just one more thing I want to tell you about Satchel Page before we break it off and we'll turn it into a conversation. And the last thing is, Everybody knows, you said in 1947, Jackie Robinson came and broke the color barrier in baseball. And kids today in school, if they know anything about any particular historical issue, they know one person. And when you think about breaking the color barrier in baseball, if you ask any kid who broke the color barrier in baseball, it was who? It was Jackie Robinson. So we, we're smart enough, our school kids today, to know one thing well, and that is Jackie Robinson. I want to tell you what an old Negro leaguer said, and he said it much more eloquently than I could ever say. He said, Jackie Robinson opened the door to the new racial reality in baseball. Jackie Robinson was the one who opened the door, but the one who inserted the key was Satchel Paige. What Satchel Paige did was a generation before the world had ever heard of Jackie Robinson, Satchel Paige was out there traveling to small towns across America and coming to cities in his later years, like Baltimore, Maryland. And he was pitching in the boondocks of the Negro League, where nobody knew what was going on. If you happened to be reading a general interest newspaper, or you happened to be a white American. They had never heard of all that was going on, the great baseball that was being pitched in the Negro Leagues. So Jackie Robinson came along. He pitched half of one season in professional in Negro Leagues baseball before he made it to the major leagues, before Branch Rickey picked him up. He pitched for a team. Anybody know where, Satch, where Jackie Robinson pitched in the Negro Leagues? The best team in the Negro Leagues. And Toronto, City. wasn't it? Kansas City. What was the team called in Kansas Monarchs. City? The Monarchs. He pitched for a team for the team called the Kansas City Monarchs. He was the second string second baseman. The only reason the world ever heard of Jackie <coughs> Robinson was because the first string second baseman got hurt. And because people knew about the Monarchs because they knew they were Satchel Pages, Kansas City Monarchs. So Jackie Robinson comes along, he is young, he is a four-letter guy from college, and he's exactly what Satchel Paige wasn't. Satchel Paige was old, he was a character who was never going to do what Branch Rickey told him to do. And Jackie Robinson came, and he opened this great door to the new racial reality in baseball, but he was standing on Satchel Paige's shoulders when we did it. And I thank you, and I'd love to turn it into questions. We have some Discussion. Just clarify that last point. Anything. Were they playing the same team at that point? They were playing, playing in the same team. Satchel Paige was the great pitcher who brought the spotlight to the Kansas City Monarchs. There was a brilliant hitter who, if anybody else, should have been the first. And that guy was possibly the only hitter who, in baseball who could hit a home run 
And it did hit a home run in Yankee Stadium, further than Babe Ruth. Anybody know who that was? Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson. So the greatest, when somebody asks you ever, who are the greatest pitchers and greatest hitters in baseball, tell them, if you want to show that you're really smart, tell them that Josh Gibson was the greatest hitter ever, and that Satchel Page was the greatest pitcher. He was a catcher. He was, yes, he was a catcher. He caught for the, uh, say again, anybody know where? Josh Gibson, anybody know anything about Josh Gibson? I never had him in school. Never heard of him. Well, Josh Gibson died of what I think was a broken heart because he never made it to the major leagues to play baseball. And Jackie Robinson did. I hate to ever say anything bad about Jackie Robinson because he opened a lot of doors that was very important. But one of the things that I always resent Jackie Robinson for was that he never acknowledged that he stood in the shoulders of guys like he was a little bit embarrassed about the Negro Leagues. He got out of there as quickly as he could and he never looked back. And he actually wrote a story for a leading black publication, I think it was Jet. Uh, he wrote a story disparaging, saying bad things about the Negro Leagues. But Jackie Robinson would never have made it where he made it if it wasn't for all those Negro players. Questions? Comments about uh, the great exhibit? Yes, ma'am. I may have a comment somewhere, but Jackie Robinson was not the greatest player. He was the only black player that had the temperament yes. that could deal with the racial <coughs> divide and the insults at that time. Ah, the well, others was not. Right, exactly. What, what temperament to deal with it? So the guy who signed Jackie Robinson was this owner named Branch Ricky. Um, and what Branch Rickey was looking for, Branch Rickey was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was one of the great teams, and now the LA Dodgers. And Branch Rickey was um, a teetotaler and a guy who wanted somebody, um, who understood that it was going to take somebody with a certain kind of temperament not to get upset at all the things. They were hurling um, insults at Jackie Robinson. They were throwing things at him. They made his life miserable. And Satchel Page, he knew, among other things, would never take things down. Satchel Page would yell back and get a short fuse. On the other hand, I'm convinced, so it was temperament along with a lot of other things. He was young, he had a quiet temperament. He, I think he died, Jackie Robinson died much too young because I think he kept it all inside of him. I think he was having ulcers and he was eating away himself and he was taking all that crap. But Satchel Page, I'm convinced, Satchel Page had pitched for so long in front of white audiences as well as black audiences at the end that I'm convinced that if Satchel Page had been the first, he would never have gotten that crap that Jackie Robinson did. And I happen to, I've come before you with a stated bias. My bias is as good as Jackie Robinson was, it should have been Jackie Robinson. It should have been one of the guys who had spent their life showing how good that black ball players were. And those guys didn't get signed for the later. The reading that, that I've done about that is uh, uh, I come away with a story that uh, Jackie Robinson was chosen for the reasons you said. And uh, the deal was that Branch Rickey said to him, uh, first he put him in the m white minor leagues in Toronto, in Canada. In Montreal. Montreal, was it? And, uh, and they... Uh, the, the deal was that Jackie Robinson would be quiet for two years and take anything that was thrown at him, uh, both physically and verbally. 
And the fact of the matter was, he really did get a lot of things thrown at him. It was terrible. He got things thrown at him in Montreal. But, but after two years, he was free to act any way he wanted to. Well, the first two years he played, he just tore up the bases. He's a fierce runner like Clemente was. A very fierce ball player and a great, a very good ball player. But um, uh, that was the deal. When he came into the league, Dixie Walker, who was on the Brooklyn Dodgers, he got all the racists on the team to say, we're not going to play if he plays. Well, they did play. And things in, in Cleveland one day, to show you what a great guy Pee Wee Reese was, who was a shortstop for the... I'm sorry, I'm taking over your no, no, spot. No, no, you're right. Pee Wee Reese did something that was incredible, and it really goes untold a lot. And in Cleveland, there were death threats against Jackie Robinson. That's how bad it was. And when they got on the field for batting practice and infield practice, Pee Wee Reese walked out on the field with his arm around Jackie Robinson. It sends chills down my spine to, say, to even repeat that. But I read all that stuff about it. and, and it, uh, was, um, it was brilliant. The Satchel Pitts would never have gone back and played two years in the minor so there are reasons why it happened. What we're doing now, the good news is that that exhibit downstairs, Pride and Passion School, mm -hmm. is all about finally giving some acknowledgement to the Negro League ball players. And Satchel Page, by the way, was the first guy ever, the first black ever to make it into the Hall of Fame based on his record, not in the major leagues, because he didn't have a great record and long in the majors, based on his record in the Negro Leagues. And he deserved to have been first at least there. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, uh, I guess sometimes you're too fast for me. So I would like just to clarify and then ask a question. You mentioned that Central Page played in the majors in the White League. So he got a job in those after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947, 1948. Correct. At that point, later than that, Central Page began to play in the majors and for a white team. Is Correct. that correct? That Did I follow you? And that was Kansas City? Um, no, Kansas City was his okay. last team in the Negro Leagues, and then he played for Cleveland Indians in the summer of 48. But he played white for major a Indian. white major team. Correct, he right? did. Did you mention what that was? That was the Cleveland Indians. Cleveland that was Indians. a white major league team. Okay, and then I have a, a background question, which is who owned the Negro League? Who were the owners? That's Are they white owners or African-American owners? Um, the answer is both. That for the Kansas City Marmots, which may have been the best Negro League team ever, um, that was owned by a white guy named Wilkinson, who is now, as of a year or two ago, in the Hall of Fame. And he was um, he was an extraordinary owner. There was the other great team that Satchel Page played for, which was the Pittsburgh Crawfords, was owned by a black guy, a, a guy who was an underworld character um, named um, Greenlee, and the in those days it was not easy um, for African Americans to earn enough money to buy and run a baseball team. And so one of the ways they could do it was some of the numbers guys there. They were in the numbers racket, and this guy Greenlee um, was one of the most distinguished guys in the black community. But he also happened to earn his living um, by people shooting crafts and doing things. He would say. And if he were here with us today, he would say this was Black America's version of a banker. He used to lend people money uh, 
that rates had seemed high, but banks wouldn't lend blacks money to him. He, he was um, these owners of Negro League team. You've got to understand, if we sort of take ourselves back 50 years, that the most, one of the most prominent institutions in black America was the Negro Leagues. And the best thing you could do on a Sunday afternoon, if you, had, if you were trying to impress a date and take them out, you know, and show them a big time on a Sunday afternoon, you take them to the place where everybody wanted to be seen and heard and watched, which was to this enormous stadium where the best ball players in black America were playing ball. And when the white teams would go out of business, one theory on why it took till 1947 to integrate baseball was, do you know what happened when the Baltimore Orioles went out of town? How did they rent out, how did they make money on their empty stadiums? They rented the Negro Leagues teams. They rented the Yankee Stadium. They rented all these stadiums. And one theory in why segregation lasted so long is these owners were filling their pockets with all this extra money of having these black teams come in, their teams out of town, and they're getting a full crowd to come and see Satchel Page. And anytime the black owners or the Negro League team owners spent all the money to rent, what was the was Memorial Stadium here before, and Yankee Stadium, the only way they could be assured that they could fill up that stadium and earn back their money was to rent Satchel Page for the night, yeah. and pitch, even if it was only one or two or three innings. This is a guy who pitched baseball all year long. He would pitch in the Negro Leagues. He would pitch in his teams that they called barnstorming teams that traveled all across America. And then when it got cold in the north, he would go south to Cuba, to Puerto Rico, to Venezuela. And so a guy like Babe Ruth, he was lucky, would pitch from April when the Major League season opened to October if he was lucky in his team made playoffs. Satchel Page was pitching nearly 365 days a year for more than 40 years. And today's pitchers, after you pitch a ball game, it was a big question in this year's World Series. Could you pitch a pitcher on just, was it three days rest that Carpenter had in the last game? Could you pitch him on just three days rest? Satchel Page believed the way you exercised your arm and the way you kept your arm in shape was to pitch a little bit every night. And the idea of needing three days rest, being a hero, that's all you had. He never got three days rest in 40 years. And it was just, it was a different attitude when he was a different kind of player. Is it true that, um, that uh, one game he was pitching, I heard this story and I don't really know if it's true, but they say he was pitching and um, he was getting hit a little bit, and the opposing team were mocking him and making fun of him and all, and he got mad about it. So he brought in the and, the outf and the, his team was making some errors. They say he brought in the outfielders and told the third baseman to sit down or somebody in the infield, kept like a first baseman and a shortstop and a catcher, and he brought all those other players in and told them to sit down on the infield. And then he struck out the side. Uh, is that, that true? Well, that is true. And he did that successfully often enough that he tried it on a couple occasions by having not just his outfielders and his third baseman sit, but it was just he and the catcher up there. Okay. And what it meant was you either struck out the player or they hit a home run because any hit was gone. And he did it successfully enough. They wouldn't tell that story about him if he had done it and it didn't work. But he did it enough and won the ball game often enough that he could do it again. He would do anything. He understood that playing in the Negro Leagues meant two things. One is that you were a really good ball player, and he had to go out and show you were a good ball player. 
the other ones lived to be a showman. That the way to fill a stadium with people who didn't have a whole lot of money, who you were asking to come on a Sunday afternoon or on a Tuesday night or whatever it was, is you were to put on a show for them. So imagine the kind of show. I go to a show, I come to Baltimore, Maryland from Boston for a show if somebody told me that a guy could sit his infield and sit his outfield down and strike out the side. And that was extraordinary. And he did those kinds of things night after night for 40 years. He was one of the world's greatest showmen and one of the world's greatest baseball players. And he may be in the history of sports in America. He may also be the singly most quoted athlete because he was so eloquent. He would say things like, don't pray when it rains if you don't pray when the sun shines. And he'd say things like that. Nobody was quite sure what any of this stuff meant, but it sounded so brilliantly poetic that they would put it on the newspaper's sports section on the front of the sports section. And over the years, he started showing up in the financial pages and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Satchel Page's take on the world, and his take was poetic. He was a philosopher, he was a baseball player, and he was a racial pioneer. Never look back, something like the game. Exactly. Don't look back, something like the game. You ever heard that question? That was Satchel Page. And again, nobody's quite sure what it means. What I think it meant was that he was so intent on plowing ahead, despite all these odds, despite growing up in Mobile, Alabama, that he knew if he ever looked back, he might have to give up because the odds were so intense against him. So he kept plowing ahead, and he made it not only to the major leagues, he made it to the Hall of Fame. And he didn't just make it to the Hall of Fame. If you ever go to Cooperstown, to the great Hall of Fame, where baseball wasn't founded, you will notice right outside the Hall of Fame this extraordinary statue of a guy in a position like this. His leg kicked up so high into the air that it looked like it blacked out the sky. And the guy who is there in that statue is Satchel Page. He not only made it to the Hall of Fame, he made it there with one of two statues out in front of the Hall of Fame. That's how great he was, and that's how much of a character he was. Yeah, um, first of all, first of all, thank you for not only telling the story, but illustrating the story. I truly enjoyed it better than watching baseball on TV. And um, perhaps you mentioned it in your opening, but what was his family uh, situation, and how did he end up in the uh, juvenile reform court? Yes, he was, the, I got to confess about something. When you write books, um, you go out and do a bunch of talks after you write books. And when you write books a while ago, you've written books in between the one. I just, between the time Satchel Page came out and now, um, I wrote another book and am intensely working on another one. And the, um, so I have to go back on the plane on the way here today and try to remember some of the numbers because I can't remember what was in. I just got back from my editor of the last book, which is getting ready to come out. And you can't remember all that. But one number I will never forget is that he was one of 11 children. And he had seven children himself. And when you are one of 11 children, and your mother is a, he called her, I'm trying to remember what his, his title for her was. But what she was was a washerwoman. She went to white people, wealthy white people in Mobile's homes, and she did their laundry for them. And his father he called a landscaper. But his father truly should have been called an occasionally employed gardener. His mother supported all 11 kids, really. And his situation was bad enough in terms of home that his parents totally loved him. But he 
he was a truant. He didn't go to school a whole lot. He loved uh, fishing for catfish down at the river. He loved playing baseball. He loved doing a lot of things. So at a certain point, at age 12, the court had him come before them, and they said, we don't know how to get you to go to school. So the only thing we can do is we're going to send you to reform school. And that reform school, as he said himself, saved his life. And all of his buddies, who he was running on the streets with, were getting into incredible trouble, and some of them didn't live to be 17. When he got out at age 17, he knew he could do one thing brilliantly, and he did it for the rest of his life. He supported seven kids. And his kids were not so sure they wanted me to be writing this book, and they were not, during the process of writing it, not especially friendly. Now, anytime I go to Kansas City, we go on the radio together, we do talks together, because the truth is, his kids he had so late in life that they had no idea what he was really like. And my book is not an objective book. It, it, I went into this book thinking Satchel Paige was a character, and he did some things wrong, but that he was also a hero. And I came out thinking he was even more of a hero. And he is a, a racial pioneer, and that's what his kids wanted to believe about him. And now they have at least, um, for better or worse, a book that says the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in knowing how um, newspapers covered the um, Negro League. Um, did they, did, did so-called white newspapers cover the Negro League? You were describing Baltimore saying the Negro League would play when the Baltimore team was out of town. Yes. I'm just wondering if that was left very good last press or just... It's a good question because this book is truly I would never admit that to anybody but my publisher was trying to sell them all. When I was trying to sell the book, the first line of my book proposal, the book proposal is when a wannabe author sits down and writes about what they dream of a book looking like. They generally don't know a whole lot. And they're generally trying to sell a bill of goods to a publisher saying, give me some money to go write this book. And so I wrote, my first line was, um, this is a biography of two American icons, Colvin, Satchel Paige and Jim Crow. This is really a book that's a biography of Jim Crow as much as Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige was born in the year Jim Crow came to Mobile, Alabama, and he took us through the whole history of Jim Crow. And so what I'm about to tell you is what they did with baseball, but what they did with black life back then, which is white America, including the white press, including Baltimore Sun and the New York Times and all these newspapers, ignored black baseball. They ignored it partly because they didn't care about what was going on in the black and partly because they were dumb enough that they didn't realize that they were great players like Satchel Paige playing baseball there. So in the early days, it was only the black press that covered it. Great newspapers like the Chicago Courier and the I'm sorry, Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender. And they were doing a good job. I can't remember what Baltimore was like. Afro-American. 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 I should remember that because they did a great job. <coughs> Sam Lacey was there. Sam Lacey was great. Sam Lacey was, my tragedy in writing the book was that Sam Lacey was dead and Satchel Page was there. So black papers covered it, they covered it occasionally. That was convenient for Satchel because he could claim anything he wanted to claim. <laughs> he claimed that he pitched 250 shutouts. Now 250 would be about 10 times the record for any other pitcher ever. But nobody knew because even black newspapers were not covering most of the games and they didn't have record keepers and they didn't have official statisticians. So you could say whatever you wanted to say. So I went back and tried to figure out whether what Satchel Paige said was true. And what I ended up with was somewhere around 80 or 90 percent of what he said, the claims that he made, I could confirm. The other 10, 20 percent, I'm convinced, came out of thin air. 
which raises the question, why, if you had 80% truth, why would you invent anything that would question it? And I'm convinced that Satchel invented it because he was such a good storyteller, and because reporters like me were so naive that we would listen to a great story, and every time he told the story, it became a little bit better story, until we were never sure what was truth and what was fiction. But the truth was that most of it was not fiction, and it was extraordinary, and he was amazing. And we should have done a better job covering him, because he was the first one that the white press ever paid attention to. He had stories in the New York Times, and Time Magazine, and all of these publications, because when white America and the white press finally discovered black baseball, the most compelling figure to tell the story to, every reporter in the world was always looking for the general story and then some brilliant human lens that you can tell the story through. And there was no more brilliant human lens than Leroy Satchel Page to tell the story through. So they all were about him. Um, when they started, when the white newspapers started covering, yeah. so finally started covering. Finally started covering. Was that pre-Jackie Robinson? Meaning it was pre-Jackie pre Robinson. Or, or post? I mean, well, it's, it's, all part of, it's all part of the story. It was pre-Jackie Robinson, and it was because the white press was covering Satchel Page that they realized that there was a second string, second baseman in the Kansas City Monarchs who might not be bad. He could run fast. He could kind of hit and kind of feel. His name was Jackie Robinson, and we would never have discovered him. Branch Rickey, sitting there in Brooklyn, New York, how would he ever know about a guy playing Negro Leagues baseball in Kansas City, Missouri, Missouri, unless they were writing about him. They were writing about it not because Jackie Robinson was anybody, but because Satchel Page was somebody, and Jackie happened to be on that team. And that was in the 40s. And that was in the, the 40s. The book has the exact dates, but no, it was no, a slow I mean, discovery, I mean, very slow discovery. As I mean, this is all race history in America. And what I wrote the book for was my kids and kids your age who would never in a million years sit down and read a book about Jim Crow, but might if it was disguised as a book about a great baseball player. That is the story of Jim Crow America. You all know 47 Jackie Robinson integrates baseball. When did we integrate the schools in America? 54. 54. Yeah. Brown versus Board was 1954. <clears throat> Baseball was not only all-American sport, it was a sport that was driving changes in America. For all we think, it's just sports. Seven years before we integrated our schools, we were integrating our baseball diamonds. That was amazing. They didn't textbooks either. They never catch up with the textbooks. But what they did catch up with was the books about baseball, because people started writing books about it. In the first something like 15 years after they let blacks into baseball, Blacks won the most valuable player in both leagues, some extraordinary like 80% of the time. They suddenly discovered that they've been sitting on this reservoir of their only 10% of America, but they were 50% of the great baseball players in America. And the tragedy is that a guy like Josh Gibson would die before we knew that he could hit a home run further than Babe Ruth. What was the relationship uh, between um Jackie Robinson and Satchel Page. Uh, great question. Would you come with me to all my talks on this? <laughs> <laughs> the relationship was that um, Satchel, who was probably 20 years older than Jackie, used to call him his grandfather. Jackie Robinson, for all the crap that he took when he was out there playing and people were talking to him, his hair went white prematurely, gray and then white, and he looked like an old man. The relationship was they had no use for one another. The, uh, the two 
Jackie Robinson's Satchel Page was an Uncle Tom from a previous era. It was like a lot of the civil rights workers in the 1960s. The people of Martin Luther King's generation didn't realize that there were guys. I wrote a previous book on a guy on a, on a group of men called Pullman Porters. And their leader was A. Phil Brandoff. And people of Martin Luther King's generation didn't re realize that the real, if Martin King was a father of civil rights in America, A. Phil Brandoff was a grandfather. Only, you forget the grandfather, you remember the father. Satchel Page was the grandfather, and he was embarrassment to Jackie. And Satchel never forgave him for the bad things he said about the Negro leagues, and Jackie never had any loose for Satchel or the other guys that came before him. And that was a tragedy. And he, my guess is, in his older age, Jackie would have maybe acknowledged that these other guys did something, but they would never have made it if it weren't for the Satchel. Uh, I'm not very familiar with uh, baseball, but my, my game is really soccer. Uh, but such a page's history comes to me as a, a student of uh, the impact of racism for one, and the audacity of people making decisions about these things uh, that carries on today. Yes. Uh, I think my first introduction to it came with Muhammad Ali, basically. When you look at the history of Muhammad Ali, uh, it's just amazing how this brilliant, brilliant human being with such skills that is almost unmatched would, uh, by some, want to be suppressed and even threatened or killed. Now, this goes on today. So, I believe there is talent, skill, all those things in it, all of us. But how is it that certain group would have the audacity they could want to suppress this kind of thing? Ah. And, and, and go forward. I mean, where does that come from? Um, you're asking the wrong guy about that. All, all I can do is tell you that they, that they did it, and that Satchel, unlike a lot of people, at least live to stick it in their face and say, here's exactly how talented I am, and here's what I can do. And that he had to go out there and do things like throwing a baseball over a matchbook. I mean, that's partly an embarrassment, but it's also partly what he was willing to do, what he had to do in those days to show that like people who had the audacity to suppress him, you had to go out and show them that you're not just talented, but you're twice as talented as anybody else, and you're doing things that no human being could do. He used to stick. He had what he called his 10-penny nail art. Everybody knows what a 10-penny nail looks like. It's a nail with a head on it. It's a big nail. And he used to stick them up on a post. Uh, he'd go back to the pictures mound. The post was on the other side of the uh, home plate. And he would throw 10 baseballs at those nails. And he'd drive the nails into the post. He was, that was how hard he could throw. He could throw accurately enough and hard enough that he could hit the nail on the head and drive it into a post. Now, you could say, if you're logical, you'd say, what was he doing having to throw baseballs at nails? But that was what he was willing to do. And people continue to have the audacity today. All my book is trying to say is, if you think anything is bad today, understand what it was like when Satchel Page grew up in a different time in America, in the worst time in America, and, the, uh, and he managed to never look back and always push ahead and make it to the Hall of Fame. I'm still confused, troubled by your comment that when you decided to do the book, that there was initially resistance from his 
children. Yes, that's fiction. Um, uh, <coughs> so I guess since it would seem that they, one would might think that they would be looking forward to someone giving due credit, did was the perception that he was too much a clown, too much an accommodator? That's a very good question. The answer is. Um, that I think that they were resisting for two reasons. One is... Um, you weren't black? Well, <laughs> that is an interesting question as well. So I think that they were resistant because they had seen a lot of people come along over the years and either get their dad's story wrong or make money off of it. And I think they, they told me that they wanted to write a book of their own. And everybody says when you come to them with a book, then, geez, I'm out there writing my own book on that topic and I can't help it. Um, and the fact was, that's not what they did for a living, that's not what they knew how to do. And at the end of it, they acknowledged, geez, we're glad you did, we wish we'd help. But what I found out, interestingly, was that they couldn't help me at all, because they didn't know him when he was a pitcher. They came along too late in his life. So what I was telling them was stuff that they had never come across before. So they liked the idea that their dad was finally getting some acknowledgement. Why did you write the book? But I want to just answer the, the white question. The, when I went, I don't know what they thought about my race and the fact that I was white, but when I went to interview these men for this earlier book on the Pullman Porters, it was at a time, the Pullman Porters were these great guys who worked on the railroad. And my, the, the argument of my book was, it was called um, Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters and the Making of the Black Middle Class. And the argument of my book was, it was not accidental that everybody from Thurgood Marshall to Willie Brown, the mayor of San Francisco, to an extraordinary percent of the most prominent African Americans in America were the children or grandchildren, nieces or nephews of Pullman Borders, because these guys did something special. Did and when I was writing the book, weren't they first unionized black? They were the first black union, union in America, and they were the first in a lot of things. I'm convinced that they helped launch the civil rights movement. Oh, they did? They, they, did. Yeah. they did lots of things. They gave money, they gave their union calls, and most importantly, they gave their leader. A. Philip Randolph, and a guy in, in Montgomery, Alabama, named E.D. Nixon, was a Pullman Porter. He was the one who went and bailed Rosa Parks out of jail. She worked for him. So, so I show up on the doorstep. At that time, there were a lot of living Pullman Porters. And I show up on their doorstep and ring the bell at the appointed time, and they open the door. And these guys were much too extraordinary diplomats. They had to play diplomat all their life to say, geez, I thought the guy who was calling us in the was African American. Who are you? So for the first 15 minutes of half of my interviews, the look was, what am I doing here with you? 15 minutes into those interviews, I could have been green and come from the planet Mars. And all that mattered was, I was the guy who was there to tell their story. These guys were old enough that they couldn't afford to wait for some other guy to knock on their door to tell their story. So it was me or nobody. And I dedicated my book to all the Pullman Porters that I interviewed who never lived long enough to see the book. I wrote the book six, eight years ago, something like that. By the time the book came out, a little over a year and a half after I started it, or two years after I started it, half the Pullman Porters I didn't even were gone, and today they're all gone. And the Amtrak finally realizes that it wants to pay tribute to the Pullman Porters. And once every year or two, I get a call from Amtrak saying, help us find a Pullman Porter. And my answer is always, I'll help you do whatever I can, <coughs> but you waited too long. These guys are gone. And that's the tragedy of the, uh, let, let's do one more question and then you, one more here and one more here and then grab popcorn and, and you've been ready to come out. And come out instead of the, I thought, I was really excited when I 
came into town and I saw these traffic jams and I thought, all these people are coming to the <laughs> park. <laughs> About 25 years ago, it's 30% black. Today, Major League Baseball is under 10% black. And there's something going on that um, baseball is trying to address in a token way. But it's, uh, so we've got to start asking those questions again. Last question. I was question. just asked why you wrote the book. Oh. Why I wrote the book? I wrote the book because two of the things I love most in the world are um, telling stories about America. And there's no more story that continues to resonate, I think. And I love baseball. And if you could do both, if you could spend two years telling the story about race and about baseball, how could I not write the book? So you love the Boston Red Sox? Well, I wouldn't love. I don't know what's coming. <laughs> I mean, well, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> are you one of those guys like um, uh, the woman that works for Harvard? That's a crazy. She used to be a Dodger fan. Now she's Boston. All Red Sox fan crazy <laughs> One last question, because I know you said you were wrapping up. But when you were describing some of his showmanship that helps to do the matchbook to get the crowd to come, it actually reminded me of uh, some of the beginnings of the Harlem Globetrotters, mm. who put on a show with their basketball. Well, that's to, a great note too. That's a great to, note to end on. And Satchel Page, you know. The guy who I wondered who, if like they saw some of what he was doing and built on it. They did. His best Satchel Page's best friend was Bruce Tatum, who was the star of the Harlem Globetrotters. The guy who owned the Harlem Globetrotters was a guy. Anybody know Gabe Saperstein? The guy who signed Satchel Page who built that play his first game was Gabe Saperstein. There was there was extraordinary synergy, extraordinary um, parallels between what the Globetrotters did and what Satchel did. So Satchel would go out there in his later life when he had to give up playing baseball because he was over 60 and he couldn't do it. He would go out there with the Harlem Globetrotters and do performances at halftime with them. He was out there, he would do anything. He had had kids late in life. He had earned fortunes and spent fortunes and he had to do anything that he could to support himself. That included being, he understood that the Globetrotters were not a question of embarrassing themselves. They were a question of bringing the idea of how great these basketball players were. It's tragic that people who were as good as Bruce Tatum had to go out and perform like that. And it's brilliant that they could go out and earn a living doing it. And Satchel Page and Bruce Tatum and the Harlem Globetrotters were all part of the same story. Well, the irony of the situation is this man walked past this alley, and he saw these guys. Samuelson saw the guys in the alley 
It's extraordinary. That's how Satchel Page was first discovered because the guy saw him, the owner of the Chattanooga team, was from Mobile, and he saw him out pitching a field. And he went out and said, What's going on? Who is this guy? And I think that the, um, so that's either a story of tragedy or a story of triumph. And I think it's both. And that's what the story of Grace and America is. It's both. And people need, as much as we need to understand the bad news, mm -hmm. we need stories of people who are heroic figures who rose out of that. And Coleman Porter's were heroes, and Satchel Page is a hero, and your heroes are coming out on Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Thank you very much. And your hat. <laughs>